I think it's one of those things, as we get into it, there's a couple things that have been kind of misdefined or misunderstood, so we're going to uh, try and clarify as we go. Um, but I believe, again, that how we are in that secret place with the Lord changes the way we live. It changes the way we treat others. It changes the focus and the direction of our entire lives. And without it, we're putting on a show. So let's pray, and we get into chapter 7. God, how desperately we need the instruction from your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd take these things, and you'd apply them to our lives today. God, that it just wouldn't be knowledge accumulated, but it would be practical application given, so we know how to live to glorify you. We just uh, submit ourselves, and submit this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So chapter 1, like I said, we're only going to go about halfway through the chapter. Starting in verse 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck in your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs or cast pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you into pieces. Um, that was the... the what I had mentioned earlier, judge not lest you, or uh, that you be not judged. This is a verse that's been misused, misunderstood, even mistaught. And it's one that it's funny to me because where I've heard this verse the most are people that will come out right away and say, well, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in the Bible and don't judge me. <laughs> so that they throw out don't judge me as like this safety that you're not allowed to. As a Christian, you can't judge me, right? And, and it's interesting because, again, used by people that don't hold to the, the things of God at all, but it's been redefined in our society. The, the idea of judgment, what judgment really is, has been redefined. And it's been turned into that if you disagree with me on anything, anything, you're judging me, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here at all. And and this has been misused as if Jesus were somehow giving this universal acceptance of everything. Like he's going, no, no, just, just don't bother people. Don't, don't tell them right and wrong. Don't, just leave them alone. Let them do their thing. Don't judge them. Again, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This isn't some sort of universal acceptance of sin or of everything or anything. Um, it is God who defines sin and righteousness. It's God that is, defines right and wrong. And so when somebody comes to us and tells us that they're doing something, and we know how it's defined either way in the Bible, there's no judgment on our part at all, right? If someone comes to me and goes, man, I just did something that was so fun. I had a blast. And I go, what was it? I robbed a bank. And I go, well, the Bible says that's wrong. That's stealing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Bro, don't judge me. Don't judge me. 
You can't tell me this thing that I had such a great time doing is wrong. Well, I'm not judging you. The Bible is. God has given us the instruction. And we as believers do have at least part of a calling. Part of our calling is to speak the truth. We are to speak it in love. We're to speak it in kindness. But it isn't judgment. And I think one of the things that we do, um, there's a couple things that as Christians we are terrified of being accused of. Judgment is one. Gossip is another. And, and people will throw that up. You gossiped about me or you're judging me. And we're so afraid of, of being accused of that that we instantly back up. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what I did at all. That, I didn't mean that. And I think we need to be people willing to go, no. I'm telling you this because I love you, because I care about you. I'm speaking the truth in love. Even if it hurts, that's what I'm doing. That's my motive, right? And, and we just, again, it's good that we're concerned about those things, that we're careful about not being judgmental, but um, there is a place for us to take this stand. Now, what kind of judgment specifically is Jesus talking about here? Well, as many things in the, in the Sermon on the Mount are, I believe this is another one that is pointed very much at the Pharisees. That the Pharisees, who were those in charge of the Word of God and supposed to be giving it out correctly to the people, had added a lot of things to it. So there was the law, but then there were a lot of areas they went, well, that doesn't really give us clear enough definition of what is right and wrong, so we're going to come up with our additions to that. And they wrote over 300 books added to the law of Moses, to clarify the law of Moses, right? But some of those laws, literally the only ones that could keep them were the Pharisees. That they were so strict and stringent that only those who were living the life of a Pharisee could keep them. And the common man was just unable to. And so the Pharisees looked down on anyone that couldn't do what they did. They were less. They were lower. They were dirty, unclean sinners. They weren't like the Pharisees. That's the judgment Jesus is speaking of. That anytime we start to see ourselves as better and someone else is unworthy, that's a judgment. That's a serious judgment. And it's been interesting, looking back over my life, there have been a few people, I can think of a couple of people in particular, with it, that I worked with doing construction, and I'm like, that dude is never going to get saved. <laughs> that they're so hardcore and just against God and everything. And what's funny is, is in, in both of those cases, those guys end up getting saved, right? My judgment was completely wrong. But it isn't just speaking of the saved and the unsaved. See, we can do the same thing with other Christians and go, well, they're not as serious as I am. They're not as committed as I am. They're not as spiritual or godly as I am. Again, that's the judgment that Jesus is warning about. Instead of coming back to that truth of we are all sinners, we are all desperately in need of God's grace, and the more we walk with Him, the more we know that we're desperately in need of His grace, we start heading down that same road as the Pharisees, believing that we're something special, that God saved us because, well, of course, it's us, but I don't know about those other people, right? It's believing we're better. Judging ourselves better than others is, is specifically the judgment he's speaking of here. Now, if I judge myself better than you, the other side of that is 
I need to point out all the reasons I am better than you. I need to show you all the laws and things that I keep that you don't so that we both understand I'm better than you, right? <laughs> and that's how it goes. But here's the interesting thing. So there's two things that Jesus is warning about here as far as the ramifications of our judgment. There's one on a physical level and there's one on a spiritual level. The one on the physical level is pretty simple. That if I go around pointing out the flaws and failures of everybody else, Guess what happens when I fail? The line just forms of people that want to tell me how I failed, right? The very judgment, the same measure I've used on others will be brought back on me. And I believe this is a spiritual law. I think it's logical. It's the way that it works. But I do believe, I've, I've seen it where it's, there's a supernatural element to how this works, right? People that are like, I'm never going to parent like my parents. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and they parent exactly like their parents, right? I'm never going to do the things that my parents did. The judgment they've used on their parents is now brought on them. So, again, those are on, on a kind of physical plane of how it works. But I think there's also the warning that's very serious of what these things, first of all, create in us. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, they lacked compassion, they lacked love, they lacked forgiveness. And so, because they weren't showing those things, they didn't receive them. But it goes even deeper than that. Because if I am caught up in religiosity, churchianity, and I don't have a real relationship with Jesus, I can fool everyone else into thinking I'm pretty righteous. But without Jesus, I'm going to be faced with the worst judgment of all. And though I could fool everybody else, I'm risking my soul by playing the game. Right? So God himself will, have, will judge me with the same judgment I've handed out. I've lacked mercy. I've lacked love. I've lacked forgiveness it will be brought back on me if I don't truly belong to Jesus. It doesn't take long for us to look in the mirror to realize we are a mess. We have a plank in our eye. And I love this. I think this is one of those, and again, we tend to look at the whole Sermon on the Mount because there's some very serious, very heavy topics. But we've already seen a couple of them, but this is another one. This is funny. Jesus used humor. This is a hilarious picture. And if you get what he's saying here, I mean, everyone would have been laughing because it is, it was funny then, it's funny now, right? The idea that a guy has a plank in his eye, and as he's swinging around, smacking into people, he's like, hey, you got something in your eye. Let me get that for you, you right? It's funny. It's funny because it's true. The same reason that comedians are funny today, same reason that good teaching strikes home, right? A good teacher can take a serious topic do it, present it in a humorous way, and what do we do? We laugh, and then we go, ah, that's true. I do that. Wow. And so I love that Jesus brings things across, this heavy topic. And I think even when he says hypocrites, maybe he was focused at the Pharisees. Maybe it was a blanket statement. But again, it was this idea of like, this is all mankind. 
this is, this is our fallen nature. This is what we all do, right? So no one is exempt from this. But we also see that in this, the picture itself tells us how we grow compassion for others. That if the plank, if we remove the plank from our own eye, then we will see clearly to remove our brother's speck. I think there's a lot to what's being said there. See, again, we look in the mirror and we go, okay, I, I see that there's a problem. There's a plank in my eye. Now, maybe that's self-righteousness, or maybe it's my own laws or rules, or maybe it's secret sin. Whatever it might be, it's there. And so I submit to the Lord, and I ask Him to begin this process to remove this plank. And you know what? It is a painful process. It always is a painful process. Even a speck is a painful process. Uh, again, construction. I got a piece of wood jammed in my eye at work one day, and uh, I kept thinking I got it out, and I didn't. turned out it was actually lodged in the, the eyeball itself. And I went to the doctor, and they put me under the special light that shows all the flaws in your eye. And he goes, can you even see out of this thing? He goes, you got so many scratches and craters, it looks like the surface of the moon. And I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, I just avoid the, all the blurry spots. <laughs> but he had to, like, put this special deadening and all these things so that he could even just remove that little speck. So the process of removing a plank is a painful process. But when I go through that, when I let the Lord do his work, it brings me to a very low, humble place. Because it had to be very real. First that it was there, and then it probably was a lot deeper than I realized, right? And what that does is that it makes me so much more compassionate over your speck. It allows me to see clearly that I might actually be some help, right? And instead of going, look at you, there's a problem, there's something in your eye, there's something wrong with you, you're failing, you're sinning, you're doing this, I go, it's nothing compared to where I was. It's very different. It's effective. Because when someone comes to me like that, I'm like, yeah, I want your help. When somebody comes barging in with the tweezers ready to jam it in my eye, I'm like, no, 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 not you, anyone but you, Right? So this is one of the ways that God builds compassion in us, is how to be effective with others, is when we're real and honest with him about our stuff. Very important. But then Jesus kind of balances this out in verse 6. And it could sound like it's this totally different thing that he's talking about, but again, these are tied together. In verse 6, he says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn, on, and turn and tear you in pieces. While we want to show compassion, we want to be careful and be gentle as we speak to others, whether it's about sin or whether it's a little thing, whatever it is. We also need to be careful that of what we share and with whom we share. Right. So there are those, like I mentioned, the two guys in construction that I talked about, and that other people, if they're just absolutely opposed and, and angry about the gospel and anything you share kind of comes back with this really aggressive tone, you know, there's, there's only so much you can share. 
Jesus loves you. Might be about it. I'm not going to go to that person who's obviously against the things of the Lord at that time and start sharing the, the intimate details about my salvation and about my conversion and about Jesus meeting me and my personal relationship with him because it will be trampled by them. I'm not going to get into the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life because it's nonsense to them. So I just need to meet them where they're at and give them as much as they can handle, and that's it. All right? And while we usually think of the angry sinner being the one that Jesus is referring to here, it's just as true with the self-righteous that doesn't believe they need forgiveness. I'm not going to go to them and deliver the deep, intimate things of, of grace because they will be trampled under those people's feet they don't see themselves as needing grace, right? So again, it just brings balance to how we're to walk, how we're to share the gospel, the heart behind it, but also we're not giving out the things of God to be mocked or trampled. Now verse 7 goes on. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds, and he who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Again, this is a section of Scripture that's been misunderstood. Uh, as Jesus returns to the subject of prayer, it's not like he's jumping around. These things, again, are all tying together, uh, pointing to that relationship that we have. And as we deepen that relationship, it should begin flowing out to others. So we're not just taking in, but we're taking in and then giving out. That's the idea. And he's really saying, like, this is what that looks like, or at least one way that that looks. And he, he gives us Three aspects right here, ask, seek, and knock, but there's a fourth one behind it. I believe that there's like a progression, but these are the aspects or proof of that deeper relationship taking place with the Lord. So the first one in verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Like I said, that's been misunderstood. I've had people say, oh, that's just like the Lord just gave you a blank check that was signed going here, fill out for whatever you want. No, that's not what's being said here, right? And it could kind of sound like, because he says it pretty forcefully, hey, ask, and it'll be given, right? But I'm so glad God does not give me everything I ask for. What a mess we would be if God gave us everything. And there have been times that I was so sure what he needed to do, that I have begged him for things, and he said no. And now looking back, I'm so glad he said no. So no, it's not just a blank check. It isn't ask for whatever you want, you're going to get whatever you want, because God knows that not everything we ask is a good thing. 
He is a good father that wants to give good gifts to his kids. I don't always ask for what's good. I think it is, but I'm wrong. Most often I have found that when he says no, it's because something better is just down the road. Something different, something I had no idea about, something that I, I wouldn't have even guessed at. I saw three options. God, you're sovereign. You can choose A, B, or C, right? And I'm fine with any of these three. And he chooses E, right? Well, E wasn't on my list. And I just hear him laugh. Never is, right? He's just, I had something so much better for you. And again, it's one of the things I can relate with because as a father, one of my favorite things was finding things that my kids wanted that they didn't even know they wanted, right? When they were real little, like toddlers, there'd always be some lost toy somewhere, some little stuffed animal. I remember Hannah had this little monkey, George, that she loved, and, and she would lose George fairly often. And so whenever I would find George, I would put him someplace real obvious, right at her line of sight, right? So that when she would get up in the morning, she'd come out, and there's George, right? And I just loved it. I loved doing little things that would surprise them that they'd get excited about. And in the same way, our Heavenly Father wants to give us good gifts. That is part of His character, part of His love for us. Now, the second aspect of this relationship is seek. Seek and you will find. Sometimes you kind of lump that together. Like, ask for stuff, seek stuff, and you get stuff. That's not what's being said. <laughs> Prayer is the first part. Ask. But seeking has to do with us seeking after him. Not after stuff, not after things, not after, you know, an answer to my circumstances. But it's about seeking after him. And it makes sense. Because if I'm asking believing that I have a good heavenly father that is out to bless me, that wants to do well, then the response should be, I want to know him more. Because he is good, because he is trustworthy. That if, if, if he has a good plan for my life, I want to spend more time in his presence that I get in line with that good plan. That I want to seek after that deeper relationship. Not to get stuff, not to change my circumstances, not to get my will or build an earthly kingdom, but to get in line with his kingdom. And the cool thing is, is what Jesus is saying here is that that's what God the Father wants too. That he wants to spend time in that secret place with us. And think about how contrary that is, certainly to all the other false gods that people talk about, where people have to climb the steps of righteousness or, or, or being worthy, whatever it might be just to get the attention of whatever God they serve. And Jesus is saying, no, God wants to spend time with you. He seeks after us first. He came after us first. While we were his enemy, he sent his son for us. And so we can be sure that when we seek after him, he's going to meet us there. Now the next, I think, leads right in from there is knock and it will be open to you again this is one i get it makes sense to me in a, in a way that uh it's kind of the way i think of things then when i feel like the lord's put something on my heart to do whether it's a ministry or maybe it's something for our family or whatever it might be i i can 
kind of see the end goal. You know, it may not end up exactly what I had pictured, but the, I kind of see the end goal, and then I see the obstacles that are in the way. Well, if I look at all the obstacles, they're very overwhelming. You're like, wow, gosh, we're never going to get to the end goal because of all these other things. But what I tend to do, and I think this is part of my personality, and this is why this makes sense, is that instead of looking at all the obstacles, I, I just see the one that's right in front of me like a door. Because if this door doesn't open, I don't need to worry about door number 10. This one's got to happen first, right? And, and in my own flesh, in my own worldly way of thinking, I start thinking and devising of ways to pick the lock, to pull the hinges, to get past the door in my own strength, right? And I get stressed out about it, and I lose sleep over about it because all my plans of how to get through the door. When really all I have to do if I'm trusting in him is knock and wait. Lord, is this the door you want me to go through? I'm just going to wait for an answer. I don't have to stress about that. I don't have to worry about that. Again, I don't have to think about all the doors. Just this one right here. And it, it brings such a peace, again, to know in trusting in him, it makes it so much easier to face obstacles and trials and difficulties one door at a time, right? Now, the, I think this is important. Uh, not every door is going to open. It kind of sounds like it from what he says here, knock and the door will be open. Well, we know that isn't true because we don't want every door to open. I've knocked on lots of doors and I'm glad they didn't open, right? Jesus talks about this, in fact, describes himself in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, saying that he is the one who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So no matter what plans I have to open a door, that if the Lord has shut it, it's not going to open if he doesn't want it to open. And in the same way, a door that he opens, no one can shut. No one. And he encourages the church that are in Revelation to say, look, I've set a door before you, speaking of a door of ministry, and nobody can shut this door. And so again, it isn't up to them, like, okay, well, we've got to do all these things and make sure this stays open and just walk through that door. Here's the other thing I found, is after knocking on doors for a long time, thinking about all the great things that are on the other side, when the door opens, it's never what I expected. And very often, doesn't look like I want to go through it once the door's open, right? It opens up, and I'm like, mm, no, that's okay. Is there another door? <laughs> and, and so I hesitate, like, oh, this isn't what I was expecting. But if we go through, we're going to find, man, it is the best life and the best adventure to just one door at a time. Now, if the door doesn't open, that's okay, too. Because what I found in patiently waiting, praying, suddenly there's another door I did not even realize was there that's better than what I had thought I needed, right? Again, just like that, the asking that he knows best. And our job is to knock and wait and trust in his goodness, that he is the one that gives good gifts. And I love just a logical picture Jesus gives us here in verse 11. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father who is in heaven it's, it, 
it's really just so simple, right? Because we already have admitted, yes, there's a plank in my eye. Yes, I have issues. Yes, I need God to do a work in me. Yet if I know how to love my children, how much more does a perfect, pure, holy God of love love me? Then why do I question him so much? Why do I question his motives? Why do I question his plan? Why do I question his will? Why do I think I know better than he does, right? If in my worldliness, I know how to love my kids, certainly he knows how to love us more. Then in verse 12, he says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now again, this seems like a quick change. He's talking about asking, seeking, knocking, us personally in this walk with God. And then all of a sudden he's like, and therefore, in other words, with these things in mind, love your neighbor. What? We weren't even talking about my neighbor, right? But again, this is the idea that it's the overflow. That if I understand God's love for me, his plan for me, that I can trust in him, that love is what every single one of us is desperately hungering for. To be loved with that unconditional love. And the only one that can love us like that is God. But when we get a taste of it, it shows us how to love one another. And that's the kind of love we want to receive back, right? And so it's really pretty simple. He's just saying, look, this is how God loves you. And if you want to receive that love, you need to show that love. You need to be the one giving out God's love to others. Again, it's, it's a very natural progression, and that's the fourth aspect of these things, is that we're taking in from the Lord, in going deep in our relationship with Him, and then it should be flowing out of our lives as we ask, seek, and knock. Man, now at a glance, you go, this is pretty good stuff. I mean, this is... I'm going to do this. doesn't seem that hard. <laughs> this is one of those things really easy to talk about. It's really easy to go, yeah, good idea. Let's all do that. It's so much harder to do. It is absolutely contrary to our fallen nature. Absolutely against our flesh to do these things. To ask, seek, and knock, and trust the Lord, and it's against our nature to, to love others with that type of love. This is the hard way. And that's why Jesus is calling us, making it clear, living this way is going to require us to make hard choices. Hard choices that other people are not going to like and they're not going to understand. To do things, to say things that will make them uncomfortable or us uncomfortable, or whatever it might be, this is not the easy way of living. It requires us to trust God, to trust his will, to trust his plan for us, and to lay my will and my ideas aside, to abandon them, to die to them, and take his on instead. This requires us to walk by faith. And this is why Jesus says, in, starting in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. Lots of people take the easy way. The, the wide path is the path of least resistance. You can 
play political correctness and you can say what people want to say and you don't even have to mean it and you just flow in with the, the flow of mankind because they're all on the wide road. But unfortunately, it all leads to the same place, destruction. And Jesus is saying, look, here's the key, man. You've got to fall in love with God. Have this desperate, deep relationship with him. And then let that love flow out. But that is the narrow way. And few find it. When you think about all of the history of mankind, few find it. Jesus, he's the gate. He's the, he's the way. He's the only way. That's all there is. And it's through him we see that love of God for us. My prayer is that we would be those, and, I, and we are those to these people to a certain degree, but man, we want even more. We want to go even deeper. That we would be those that ask and seek and knock and trust in God's answers and encourage one another to do the exact same and challenge one another to go deeper in our walk with Him and that then we would let that love not only flow out to one another in this church, but one others into our community, into our lives and our family that don't know the Lord, that we just let his love be so obvious and bright in the darkness, right? But make no mistake, it's the narrow way. But it is the only way worth taking. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have made a way where there is none, that a, a narrow way is available when there was no way at all before you. Jesus, that you have come for us, that you sought us out. Help us to, to seek you more, to ask and to knock and to trust in you of whatever you have in store for us. Lord, whether it is trial, whether it is blessing, that people would see the honest truth of who you are in our life and that, God, we'd just go deeper into our relationship and our love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.